They're in church. I see them going out. <clears throat> I want to give you just a little bit of a, a heads up uh, with Pastor Jeff transitioning out. We've uh, decided as, as the, the leadership of the church to have just some different preaching. Uh, we want to have a, a number of different men come in to proclaim the Word of God. And so over the next few months, we've uh, begun to schedule some different pastors, mostly from the area, but some different pastors to come in and, and to share the Word, to encourage us, to love us. And, and uh, I'll, I'll just give you a, a heads up next week. Bill Daniels from Camp Pinewood is going to be here. And he's going to tell us a little bit about some of the great things that the Lord is doing up at Camp Pinewood. Uh, but that'll be mostly in Sunday school. But he's going to come and he's going to bring the word uh, to us next week. It should be a lot of fun uh, to, to hear him, to hear what the Lord's doing. And then uh, I'll probably be here about once a month uh, preaching. And uh, I'll tell you what, when... when uh, when I plan what I'm going to preach on, it's, it's always best, I think, to take something, whether it's a, a section of Scripture or maybe a book of Scripture, and to walk through that. And I thought, well, uh, it's going to be once a month or every so often, but I want to walk through the book of Colossians with you guys. So uh, take your Bible and open up to Colossians 1. And as you're turning there, uh, I do want to just give a... a well, a little bit of background in this book of Colossians. If you spend much time reading the Pauline epistles, you begin to see themes develop within each book. The theme of Romans is justification by faith. The theme of Ephesians is practice your position in Christ. The theme of Philippians is, is joy. Well, the theme that we see uh, dominating the book of Colossians is the theme, the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And as we move forward to the book of Colossians, my prayer is that Christ will reign supreme in your lives and that you will be satisfied in Him as your all in all. That's the goal of the book of, of uh, Colossians, and that's my goal for us as we walk through the book together. Uh, a couple things, uh, Colossia, uh, Colossae, it was a small city in, in Asia Minor, in a place called the Lycus Valley. It's, it's uh, what is modern-day western Turkey, western Turkey. And at, at one time, this was a, a major trade route, and so it became a large city. But uh, by the time that Paul wrote this book to the church there in Colossae, the trade route had changed, and, and Colossae, Colossae became like Radiator Springs in that it was off the beaten path, and so the only reason anybody would go there was maybe because they had family there, uh, or in this particular time, uh, there was some, some temple worship that took place there, but it was not a big city when Paul went to or wrote this, this letter, and I'll tell you also, the Bible does not tell us about Paul ever visiting the city of Colossae. Uh, it's uh, perhaps began in Acts chapter 19. Uh, that's when Paul spent a couple of years in the city of Ephesus, which is a little over 100 miles away from uh, Colossae. And when he was there, uh, most, uh, most understand that different leaders from the church, uh, so in this particular case, Epaphras, who we'll see in verses uh, uh, 7 and 8, Epaphras probably came to Ephesus to learn from Paul, and then he went back 
to Colossae, and he met with the church who met in the house of Philemon. Yes, the same Philemon that, that has the book written to him, or that particular letter written to him. And so Epaphras uh, probably was the leader, maybe along with Philemon to a certain degree, and, and he went back and forth from Ephesus, where Paul was at, to Colossae to teach and proclaim the word. And, and as we begin to consider, we recognize there were some problems. And specifically, we see the tendencies of Gnosticism start to arise within the book of Colossians. And if that's a new word for you, Gnosticism is just the idea that knowledge is everything. And really, on the other side of that, anything that is spiritual is evil. All right. So for instance, I could hold up this remote here and somebody might say, well, that's evil because it's a physical thing. Uh, your skin, your bones, everything in that regard is evil because it's physical. But knowledge, understanding, that is what is spiritual. And ultimately, as a result, some people began to deny the bodily presence of Jesus Christ. Well, if, if, if that's the case, and they start to deny, well, who he was and, and the fact uh, that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, they'd say, well, no, wait a minute, that can't be because anything physical is evil. So therefore, and, and there was a heresy that eventually began to arise out of this type of thinking. Well, Paul had to address that, and out of that comes the book of Colossians. And so, uh, if you're there, then please read along with me, Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your, faithful, of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, the first thing that I want to draw your attention to in, in the Colossians 1 is the fact of how Paul prays. He says, first of all, he's thanking God for the church. Let me read this uh, verse 3 real quick again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And as I was just considering this, uh, I, I wanted to 
point something out, and it was, it was really pointed out to me as I was getting ready for this morning. You know, I don't think Paul ever thanks any person. In, in all the, the, the letters that he writes, now you can check that out, and if he does, if I'm wrong about this, please let me know. But it, uh, as I began to search this out, I, I, I don't think he ever thanks any individual person ever in the New Testament. What he does is he thanks God for individuals in the New Testament. He thanks God for various things that people have done in the New Testament. And he praises the Lord. And so the point is that he's going after is, well, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit when we thank the Lord? Well, obviously, it's the Lord. Let me give you an example of this. In 1 Thessalonians 3.9, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. The point is, he turns in thanksgiving, not to the person who did something for him, but to God who provided that person with their gifts and with their abilities. Have you ever done something that's deserving of thanks? Maybe it was a Christmas gift or a birthday gift, or maybe it was just a, a, a word of encouragement or, or a compliment at the right time that it was really needed, or, 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 or maybe it was when somebody had a baby and you took a meal to the, the family so that they could enjoy some time together as a family and, and enjoy good food, homemade food. And have you ever done something like that and the person said, I want you to know I thank God for you, that you brought this meal, or that you gave me that card at just the moment that I needed to be encouraged. What, what, what would that do for us as individuals? What would that do in our church if, if we started to speak like that? Anytime somebody did something worthy of thanksgiving, they said, I want to thank God for you and for what God is doing through you. Well, I think the first thing that would do is it would keep us humble because we recognize that everything we do in serving others is a gift from God. God has given each one of you a spiritual gift. He's chosen the gift so that you can bless the church. That's why God gave you your spiritual gift. And the second thing that it would do is it would force us to think of things in terms of what God is doing. Not just the person, but in terms of what God is doing and accomplishing through each of us. The first thing that we see then is that Paul points to the Lord in that God gets the credit. The second thing is, is a, a spiritual identity. He's thanking God for the spiritual identity that the saints have. Let me uh, go back to verse 2. Paul's writing, he says, to the saints. He's made them saints. That's the first thing. Now I'm curious, what comes to your mind when you think of that word saint? Well, I don't think Paul had in mind a football team when he wrote this letter, okay? He's not talking about the New Orleans Saints or something like that. He's not talking about saints and the idea of somebody who maybe... Uh, has died, and then a council comes together and they say, well, was this person a saint? Well, no, that's not anywhere in the Bible. The way that Paul and uh, every other writer of the New Testament uses that idea of saints is 
anybody who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and looks to him as the author and perfecter of their faith. That's what he's talking about when he says a saint. And friends, those who were in Colossae who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you here today are saints if you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. That is what a saint is. And so Paul turns to the Lord and he thanks the Lord that he has made himself and those who trust in him at Colossae saints. He's also thankful uh, in their spiritual identity that they are faithful brothers. And I think the idea of what he's going after here, he says to the saints and faithful brothers, it's the idea of we have the same father. The Lord is our father and we are united as a family together. Third, they are in Christ. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. R. Kent Hughes tells of a a number of catacombs in ancient Asia Minor of, of believers. And there's one inscription that is on many of these tombs. And it's this. In Christ. In Christ. That's their identity. They are in Christ. A couple months ago, we went through the book of of Ephesians and we did a little exercise in, in Ephesians 1 to recognize all of the things that God accomplishes in Christ. Or another phrase that uses, in Him. What has God accomplished in every single believer according to the book of Ephesians? Well, here's just a few of them. In Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Chosen before the foundation of the world, we have redemption. The mystery of God's will is made known in Christ, uniting us to Him. We are predestined, we have hope, and we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those are all things that are done to every single believer if they are in Christ. And friends, that is our identity if we trust in the Lord. We are saints. We are faithful brothers. And we are in Christ. And that's what Paul is giving thanks to God for because of those who are serving him in Colossae. Next, he's giving thanks because of a spiritual possession. They have spiritual possessions. And really, this is his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a fairly typical greeting that Paul gives throughout the, uh, the Pauline epistles. And what it is, it's, it's mixing two different greetings together. When Christians came together and they saw each other, they would Grace, grace to you, grace. That is the Greek Christian greeting. But he mixes it together with the Old Testament Hebrew greeting of peace or shalom. Now think of it in terms like this. Uh, Jason and, and Cassie, Cass are in Hawaii. So imagine some Jewish people who are in Hawaii. They might say aloha and shalom. It's a greeting. And yet, think of what those things are. The first question is not, do you have peace? But do you have grace? And of course, if you have grace, then you have 
peace. The two go hand in hand together. And Paul is calling out that truth in a greeting as he greets the saints who are there in Colossae. Grace and peace from God our Father. And that peace, it's means a a whole bunch of different things, and I think he's declaring all of it when he says this. First of all, peace means that you are no longer at war with God because of your sins, but because you are in Christ, you have peace with God. But second of all, it also refers to the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, which guards your heart. There are things going on in your life if you trust in Christ, if you identify with Christ, He's given you grace. He's also given you peace. Peace that surpasses understanding. Let that peace flow through you as you live the Christian life. Those are the spiritual possessions. Next, there is a spiritual development, and I want to camp out here for a few minutes. Spiritual development, and this is in verses 3 through eight. Their spiritual development is three things. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Does that sound odd to anybody, the order of those? Uh, If you're like me, you you read those and you think, wait, he got it wrong. He said it in a different order. Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is love. Well, Paul puts love at the end because he wants to emphasize love in that particular chapter. And really, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, many of you probably have it memorized. Well, the the thing that he's focusing on throughout the chapter is love. I I think he's going here in in a chronological idea, though. Uh, Faith, that's the first thing. And, And if you have faith, then it ought to breed love. And then love, when we see the the fruit of love, it bears hope. Hope for heaven. I think that's why he has the order like this. This is not the only time that he has it in this order. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for you. He uses the same verbiage as he does in Colossians. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is faith? Well, first of all, it's faith in Christ. In 2007, I got to hear R.C. Sproul tell the story of of what happened at an ecumenical conference. Ecumenical just means kind of everybody was there. And he tells us that, he told us that there were Buddhists there, there were Hindus there, uh, Catholics, and any other kind of religion gathered together for a particular conference to celebrate that they all believed in God. And there was a priest that stood up and, and he misquoted scripture. Here's what he said. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. That was it. He ended there. You see, what this priest failed to do was he 
fail to mention the object of faith. Probably, apparently, because Jesus Christ was not the object of his faith. He had faith in faith. That was it. Paul does not make that mistake. This is in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The object of the faith is there. And of course, that is exactly what was missing from that misquotation. Here's what Paul does say in Romans 8. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you think of your, when you think of your faith, when you begin to grow in your faith, there is always an object that is before you. And the object of your affection in your faith ought to be Jesus Christ and nothing else. Faith in Him and who He is and what He has done. And so therefore, He's pointing us to the supremacy of Christ in all things. That's the goal of Colossians. And that's where He's going. Christ Jesus. What is faith? When uh, John G. Payton was translating the, the New Testament into the, the New Herbides Islands. Uh, he had trouble translating this word faith. Uh, uh, Payton was a, a missionary to these islands in the, the Pacific in the late 1800s. And as he was trying to figure out what to do, he had a, a servant that was there uh, with him. This is one day uh, when his indigenous servant came in, uh, Peyton raised both feet off the floor, sat back in his chair, and asked, <clears throat> What am I doing now? In reply, the servant used a word that means to lean on with your whole weight upon. To lean on with your whole weight upon. And of course, we could do that with a chair. It's, it's the idea. I, I sit down here. And I lift all of my weight upon the chair. That is faith. That is the definition of what faith is. That's how Paul used it. That's how it was used in, in, in Genesis 15. Remember when Abraham, he, he hears uh, the, the, the Lord tell him that no, uh, uh, this is not going to be your heir. It's going to be somebody else from your own body. You know, ultimately, we know that it's going to be Isaac who's going to be his heir. And it told, tells us that he took Mo, or Abraham outside and had him look up and count the stars and ultimately said, if you can count the stars, then people will be able to count your own descendants. And of course, he couldn't do it. And it tells us that Abraham leaned upon with his whole weight. It's quite literally what that word believed. Abraham believed the Lord. He leaned upon him with all of his weight. And that's what Paul is getting after here. It is the idea of leaning upon the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your weight. And that is faith. The second, love. Love for the saints. And again, not just love and love in general, but specifically love for the saints and the spiritual development of the Colossians. Uh, they had faith in Jesus, but furthermore, they had love for all the saints. 1 Corinthians 3, 
uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Did you get that? Without love, you're nothing. Even with faith, without love, it's, it's nothing. If you don't have love, then your faith is worthless because God's love, God is love. And anyone who does not love does not know God. One of the first things that drew me to Montana Avenue Baptist Church was a real love that I saw from the people here. We take care of one another here. When someone's hurting, we call. We, we, we send cards. We send texts or emails or however it is that we might connect with that person. We make meals and, and we pray for one another. And, and I just want to say here, if, if there's ever something in your life and you want people to come together to pray for you, uh, I'm just here to tell you on Wednesday morning, there is a group of, I don't know, 15 to 20 of us, we get together and we write down everything that we know that is going on in the body here at Montana Avenue Baptist Church and we lift one another, one another up in prayer. And it's because we love you. We love you. We love one another. And, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, it is a, a marvelous testimony of the Lord's work in your hearts to see when Montana Avenue Baptist Church loves one another. Paul in, in Colossians uh, 3, 4, or 1, 4, I should say, he says that he gives thanks since he heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. He says you're doing it. Now keep doing it. Keep loving the, the saints. And, and I say the same thing. You're loving the saints. Keep loving the saints. Keep doing what you know how to do and keep doing it so well. Furthermore, he says, first of all, faith, then love. And he ends with hope. And not just hope and hope's sake, but hope laid up for you in heaven. Hoping in heaven. This reminds me of uh, an old saying. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. We do have to endure with one another. That's another one of those one another passages in the book of Ephesians. We are called to hope, though. And our hope is in glory with the Lord in heaven. I remember once when I was in high school, I don't remember the context, but I remember somebody saying these words. You know, this particular person, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I remember hearing that and thinking, I'd never heard that before. And I thought, Is that true? Can somebody be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Let me submit to you, no, that is not true. Let me give you an example. I remember in, in her last week, uh, Esther Harrison, 
we, we knew she was going to die soon. And so Pastor Jeff went over to her and he, he took a video of this. You guys remember this? He took a video of her and he said, tell us whatever you want to tell the church for your funeral. And I, I remember sitting in Jeff's office listening to her and my heart just leaped with joy. She, she, she said, trust in the Lord. He's good. He's going to take care of you. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, trust in Him. You know, I don't think that she put that trust in the Lord because she was so earthly-minded that she was heavenly good. No, I think it's the other way around. She had her trust in the Lord, and she was so heavenly-minded that she was incredibly earthly good. She put her hope in the Lord and in the promises of the Lord, which are heaven. And you know what? Today... There's no more pain for Esther Harrison. There's no more sorrow. And I'll tell you what, she doesn't need to have hope anymore because she is with the Lord. That hope has been fulfilled. Let's have our eyes on heaven and our hope in heaven, not in our jobs, not in our cars or our houses or, or even in our family. As important as some of those things are and as good as they are, oftentimes we can replace God with those things and they become an idol. Sometimes good things can become idols. Be careful not to do that. And of course then the conclusion of that is then the gospel was furthered as a result of faith, love, and hope, the gospel was bearing fruit and it was increasing. Well, he moves then to what we're going to call unceasing prayer. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Unceasing prayer. What does that mean and what does that look like? And I think it would be easy to well, maybe be a little bit confused. What does unceasing prayer mean? Does that mean from 12 o'clock in the morning, midnight, he starts praying, and he's going to keep praying for the church in Colossae, and he's going to keep praying for them, and he's not going to stop until 12 midnight, but then the day starts over and he's got to continue to pray again. Is that, is that what he has in mind? Or is it any time something comes up in his own heart, in his mind, something going on with the Colossians, he prays for them, and he makes a commitment and a priority to pray for them every single day when he's in his prayer closet. I, I think that's the idea that he has in mind. And when he hears that a church is established there in Colossae, he doesn't say, oh, great, praise the Lord. Now I don't have to pray for them anymore. No, he prays unceasingly. He never stops. The prayer may change in, from going to, well, Lord, establish your church, build your church there in Colossae, to, Lord, expand the church there in Colossae for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom. I think it just transitions. And I'll, I'll just say this. Let's let that be the motive of our heart to pray for the Lord's glory at Montana Avenue Baptist Church. 
to pray for evangelism to take place. Let's identify people at work or in our neighborhoods or wherever it is that we may come into contact with people. Let's pray for the Lord to glorify himself and expand his kingdom to use us here at Montana Avenue Baptist Church to pray for him to accomplish things. And when that happens, let's continue that prayer so that the Lord will do great things in the sanctification of those saints. Let's never cease to pray. Well, there's, there's really two ways that he prays for the people uh, at Colossae as he lays it out here. He says this at the end of verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. And let's call that the head, the, the, the knowledge of his will. And then in verse 10, he goes to the walk. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Those are the feet. We've got the head filled with the knowledge of his will and the feet which do the walk. And so let's consider as, as, as Paul prays, and let's make the same prayer for ourselves here at Montana Avenue Baptist Church. The first is the head, with the knowledge of his will. I, I have in the, the, the cover of my Bible uh, a little note here, and it's because I've come into this question so many times. Uh, have you ever considered what is God's will for your life? What is God's will? And I, I think I've shared this before, but I don't remember when. I, I know I've done it. And it's just, it's just on a blank page in the insert of my Bible there. And it's, what is God's will? And I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I, I don't know necessarily what God's will is in your life in regard to who are you going to marry? Or where should you live? What home should you live in? What work should you do if you're wanting to go to college maybe in the next year or two? What college should you go to? What is God's will? And I can't tell you some of those things, but there are a number of things that I can tell you exactly what the will of God is because the Word of God declares it. I'm not going to read all, I'm not going to read really any of these verses to you, but if you want, you can write them down. The first thing is salvation. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God's will for you is salvation. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of Him. That is salvation. The second is that you are spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. And that is a moment-by-moment moment walking underneath the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Again, there's a contrast. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit, moment by moment, walking under the power of the Holy Spirit. Third is sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that it is God's will for sanctification. And it very specifically in that passage, he goes on and he talks about the purity. But sanctification, it is the process of being transformed or made into the image of Jesus Christ. Suffering, suffering and submission. First <clears throat> Peter 4, and really 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 5, tell us that it is God's will for submission and suffering in your life. Things good right now? Don't worry, the Lord's going to bring suffering into your life so that he can teach you something. Last week, uh, David Lunsford 
shared with us uh, the test. Well, that suffering is a test. What's the Lord teaching you right now? Don't run away from the suffering. Stand firm. Persevere. And then satisfaction. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Satisfaction. And really I could call it, I think what it calls it there in verse 18 is giving thanks. Giving thanks. But I wanted the S word, so satisfaction is what I have here. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't necessarily mean that if there's something, anything that you want, uh, that He's going to give you that really what David is going after in Psalm 37.4 is delight yourself in the Lord. You obey all the commandments that He's given you. Do what you know and understand to be the will of God. You know what he's going to do? He's going to transform your heart. He's going to make your desires come into conformity with what his desires are for you. That's the transformation. That is sanctification. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll fulfill the desires of your heart. That is what the will of God is in your life. And that's how we come to knowing and understanding what the will of God is when it comes to things like, who am I going to marry? Or what am I going to do for, for work? What college does God want me to go to? How should I raise my kids? Or, or maybe it's some of you are, how should I take care of my parents? That's how we know God's will in our own lives. Is we see what the Word of God says, we live that out, and the desires of our heart transform to what he wants for us. That's how we discern the will of God. Well, there were three things. First of all, the knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom, and uh, understanding. I think these two go hand in hand, spiritual wisdom and understanding. And let me just say this. This comes from James 1. James 1, verses 2 through 5. Uh, spiritual wisdom. How do we get that? Well, we ask for it. Here's what James 1 says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, or I could say tests, of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks, here's the word, wisdom, wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given. This doesn't mean if you want to get really smart, ask God for wisdom and he's going to make you smart. No, the context is, Lord, why are you doing this? This suffering in my life, what are you doing? Ask the Lord, and he gives wisdom. And he gives it generously to all who ask without reproach. There are times and trials and suffering in your life. And you don't know why the Lord is doing this. Why is the Lord bringing these tests? Well, turn to him and he gives wisdom. Well, that's the head. That's the head. Unpray, uh, unceasing prayer for wisdom and knowledge and understanding 
Well, then he moves to the feet. The feet. And he says this in verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. The walk. Uh, the Christian walk is a metaphor throughout the entire Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testament. Uh, Micah 6 eight, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is a metaphor that goes all throughout the Scriptures. The Christian walk is... is a walk of developing character and putting that character into daily conduct. That's what the Christian walk is. It's developing character or biblical character and putting that character into daily conduct. What does that look like then? If we walk with the Lord, then we'll bear fruit. And there's there's uh, three participles that are given here. Uh, it's uh, the ing words. All right. What does the Christian walk do? Well, first of all, it leads to bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. Second, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord also leads to being strengthened. Being strengthened with God's power. This power produces endurance. Patience with joy. It's hard to endure things in the trials of life. And yet, the grace of God, when we have it, let it take effect in our heads and in our feet, in our Christian walk, it produces endurance and patience with joy. It's hard to endure suffering with joy. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that. And that's what he says here. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And the third one, giving thanks to the Father giving thanks to the Father. And of course, he ends then where he began with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Walking with the Lord produces a thankful heart. As we come into this season of thanksgiving, I don't know what to call it other than a season of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving lasts for more than a day. It's, it's like the meal that we have on Thanksgiving afternoon. It always lasts for more than a day. It goes on. That's what Paul's going after. A heart of thankfulness. What is it that you're thankful for? Maybe we should start it with a different question. Are you a thankful person? Are you thankful to the Lord for all that He has done? And not just for that, all that He is doing. All that He is in the process of doing. Are you thankful? If you have a thankful heart, you'll never find an end of reasons to be thankful. But Paul does list out four things that he gives thanks for. Four things that he calls the Colossian church, and by way of extension, us, to be thankful for. First of all, is because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. 
God has qualified you by the power of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished with his blood to share, to share in the inheritance of the saints. Number two, he has delivered you from the domain of darkness. You were living in darkness. But he's delivered you from that darkness, from the kingdom of Satan. He's delivered you, and he has transferred you, that's the next one, to the kingdom of his Son. He's transferred you to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then fourth, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And there is something marvelous about this. And, and as we begin to transition to participating in communion, let's dwell on this for just a second. That Christ came and he died on the cross for your sins. And he was raised on the third day. Uh, this is something that we do, if you're a visitor, uh, this is something that we do once a month here at Montana Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, we take communion. We don't do it every week, uh, but we do it once a month. Usually